Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Fating and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get There are a few sort of big innovations that have uh, lots of people speculating about the future. And I think one of the biggest has to be autonomous cars or self-driving vehicles. Over the last decade, what was once really the realm of science fiction has become very much reality, albeit still in limited areas. Just about five years ago, I had a conversation with another journalist who told me that my children would never need to learn to drive. And I thought that was a bit of an exaggeration about the pace of change. But now I'm not so sure anymore. Things are happening quite fast in the space, and there's little evidence that that's going to change. But of course, along with such rapid change, there are tons of questions. What will an influx of self-driving cars do to the American workforce, for example? We have 3 million Americans currently listing driving as their primary occupations, covering mostly truck driving, but also cabs and other delivery services. How will it, how will it impact how and where people live and work? Will it change cities and how they're developed? And also, what are the implications for lots of other industries since transportation touches on so many areas? Just as an example, the auto industry, uh, uh, sorry, the auto insurance industry is currently a 200 billion a year business. And what happens to that if car accidents decrease massively and we don't need as much auto insurance? And what happens if individual car ownership is diminished as people just hail autonomous cars whenever they need to go anywhere? Or even what happens to the market for organ transplants, since unfortunately many organs today come from people who were killed in car accidents. And of course there are tons of questions just related to the policies around the autonomous vehicle space as well. Should there be requirements before such cars can get on the road? Who should write those rules? Will only big companies be allowed to take part? Will smaller companies be forced to move to other countries? Nearly two years ago, we did a general discussion on the impact of self-driving cars uh, on the podcast here, but we didn't get that deep in the weeds, I think, on the policy questions. So we're going to discuss some of those today with a special guest expert, which is Ian Adams, who is, the, is a senior fellow with the R Street Institute and who's been working and thinking quite a bit about policy issues related to autonomous vehicles lately. And as a bit of background, he comes from both the political and, in fact, the insurance world, having once worked for the Personal Insurance Federation of California. Uh, we've also got our usual co-host, Dennis Yang. Uh, but since Ian is our guest and also an expert, <laughs> let's start with you. And let's start by asking, what do, you, what do you actually think will be the most surprising impact of, of self-driving cars that perhaps people haven't really thought of before? Thanks for having me, Mike. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I suppose that question really turns on when you're looking at, right? If the time horizon mm -hmm. is the, the next five years, when you hear from all these major auto manufacturers that you're going to start to see um, 
what are called level three vehicles, so they'll still have driver driver inputs. Um, I think that the the big change will, as you suggest, probably come on the employment side. Um, it will not be the big boon to safety right off the bat uh, mm-hmm. that we're expecting, because you often hear the the number thrown around that ninety four percent of uh, of incidents on the road are related to a driver error. And while these sort of lower level autonomous vehicles are certainly going to be able to reduce that number, uh, it won't, it won't erase, uh, the 35,000 plus people, uh, who are killed on the roads every year. So I think it'll, I think it'll have to do with employment. That'll be the first big disruption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is one that, that a lot of people have talked about, but I don't know if anyone has like, does anyone have any idea what's what's <laughs> really going to happen? You know, it's like there are a lot of people who say like, well, man, that's a lot of jobs that are just going to go away. Sure. And and, and then what? <laughs> well, and what's going to be very interesting is the way those jobs are concentrated. So if you look in the Mountain West, uh, the, the number one profession uh, in terms of raw number of people working these jobs is, is driving a vehicle, driving a truck. Um, and those are largely red states. And so what was just fascinating as um, the new, the new uh, Secretary of Transportation, uh, Elaine Chao, was, was going through her Senate confirmation hearing was that you had a senator from Utah, Mike Lee, say, right, we're very excited about this innovation. We're very excited about the potential of autonomous technology, but how are we going to balance uh, the disruption? that it causes to our workforces. And particularly with the current administration and its focus on bringing jobs to a particular subset of the population, uh, you might see uh, Republicans who are traditionally sort of seen as free market oriented, right. actually seek to slow down the adoption of Im- and implementation of this technology, which, which would be a real problem. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of, yeah, you wonder sort of how how things might fall along party lines, right? Um, where, yeah, I mean, historically, the the focus of of the Republican Party has been sort of, you know, reducing regulations and trying to get you know allow for for more of these things to happen. But if that if that is impacting jobs in their states, like you could definitely see them going the other way. Um, yeah, I mean, like 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 Mike, like traditionally, we've we've kind of thought about technological innovation, you know, removing jobs as kind of like a short-sighted view, right? But like, has there, has the, like, is there any way we can kind of gracefully uh, transition <laughs> into the, the brave new world? You know, I, like I definitely, like I, I like to believe it that, you know, all of these these people that are now currently employed as drivers will find gainful employment or not, not necessarily even employment, but will be able to find gainful lives um, in this, in, in this future, right? So is, is like, are, are we, going to have to kind of go through a period of really like bad pain before that happens or or new opportunities have to be created with this with this technology you know like like we've seen in the past or so it's going to be interesting there are all kinds of different discussions that have to be had about how how to handle these these workers who may be displaced by such technology um, some have talked about the introduction of a universal basic income uh, and and just fundamentally restructuring the social safety net uh, because automation in the self-driving vehicle space, automation in other spaces, uh, their folks are going to be displaced. And uh, 
it's the, the Trump administration, for instance, is, is cognizant of this because after all, they ran on empowering people in a certain subset of, uh, of the nation and they ran on bringing, bringing back jobs and reducing unemployment. And automation stands to be an obstacle to that. So there's an interesting sort of, uh, there's an interesting sort of tension within the Republican Party at the moment, uh, where nominally pro pro innovation and free markets and yet at the same time uh, now very concerned about uh, its base and the future employment of its base and so i don't know that there's an answer right now for the simple reason that the technology hasn't been deployed in a meaningful enough way to truly gauge the sort of solution that's necessary yeah i i, I think it's i mean it is one of these difficult questions and now like in sort of a related area or sort of, I guess, a parallel look, um, you know, there's been some discussion about how, uh, you know, some of the predictions about how um, some of the different free trade deals in the past were expected to, to impact workers and jobs in the U.S. Um, and people are saying they're sort of going back and looking at the data now, and it didn't quite go the way they expected. And, you know, I think those of us on this podcast generally are supportive of free trade and sort of the benefits of, of free trade and sort of, you know, the, the, you know, uh, you know, what that leads to. Um, but it is interesting that people are, are taking a much closer look now at the impact on, um, on labor and jobs. And I think that, you know, that same sort of question is now coming up about the, the self-driving car, uh, arena. And maybe there are, you know, useful lessons to be learned from from the free trade arena. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I just, I it it would it, it would be striking if if we were willing to pursue policy that delayed the development and the deployment of these vehicles and the attendant safety benefits that that yeah. could be realized um, for that reason. I, I think that would be a real sure. shame. Yeah, no, no. I think that's I think that's true, right? I mean, you have all these different things to weigh and and one of the most difficult things and one of the things that i think is sort of the biggest obstacle to innovation is the fact that everyone focuses very much on what will we lose that we have today and and very little on what will we gain um and, and what are the real benefits and it's you know it's very easy to describe what will be lost and it's very easy to sort of picture that and to feel that but the you know the gains such as you know much more safety, much fewer accidents, the ability to travel further, to allow people who couldn't really travel before to travel, and, and all sorts of other things related to that. Um, it's tough to, to to visualize that, or even to you know certainly to quantify it. Uh, and I think that makes it very difficult for policymakers because it's very easy. It's much easier to focus on you know preventing the loss as opposed to enabling the gain. Well, absolutely, incumbents walk in, and when I think of incumbents, I mean incumbent industries walk in to a legislative hearing and they're able to pack a room and they're able to go to their members and say, y your vote is going to cost me my job. That's powerful. In a representative yeah. democracy, that is very powerful. Yeah. yeah. Unless we grant the, you know, the right to vote to these autonomous vehicles. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I mean, the, the, the you know, the, the European Union was actually just recently, they've been having this discussion about, uh, you know, rights of artificial intelligence. So, yeah. you know, we laugh, but, <laughs> but um, you know, you wonder if it may come to that. Yeah. You, hope, you hope not. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been kind of talking with a bunch of people about, you know, how to 
not necessarily fight, but how to basically challenge this kind of coming wave of, of uh, you know, autonomous vehicles and also, you know, machines taking more jobs. And I think the kind of the craftsman artisanal movement and manufacturing is kind of sort of a backlash against either, you know, some of the jobs moving overseas as well as kind of automation. But I, I guess I can't really see like an artisanal trucking company. <laughs> um, like really kind of playing into in, into any brand's vision, right? Like, you know, buy our shoes. Like we're, we, we use uh, old fashioned human driven trucks. Right. And, but, <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it, it, it surprises me that, the, that you mentioned like the benefits of autonomous, you know, vehicles, especially autonomous trucking are difficult to quantify. Cause I mean, in terms of, I mean, I guess it's just at the bottom line, like cost of goods should be cheaper, um, yeah, but the the problem is that you know that's true of of free trade as well, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like the clear benefit of free trade is that you know goods are generally cheaper, huh. and yet that's that's very rarely a winning. I guess people don't care. Argument. Yeah, or, or it's not that people don't care; they don't associate the two things. Like well, precisely, know. they 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 hear about a tariff and they think it's going to protect my job, while not realizing that it's making virtually everything in their life more expensive. Yeah. Right. But I, I do see kind of their point and it's like, okay, they're like, we don't, I don't care if it's cheaper. If I don't have a job, it doesn't really matter, right? Because I can't buy anything anyway, um, which is kind of the, you know, it, I think it's a very real point. Right. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so just in terms of kind of the advancements of the, of, in the space, I know, Ian, that you've been looking at, um, you know, sort of what the regulations are and there's sort of this... I guess fight over you know federal versus state regulations for for getting autonomous vehicles on the road. Can you sort of give us a summary of kind of where things stand right now and what the issues are there? Yeah, sure. So uh, historically, vehicle safety standards have been the responsibility of the federal government, of uh, the Department of Transportation, and specifically the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, known as NHTSA. Uh, so the federal government has had a fairly light hand to this point in its approach to regulating autonomous vehicles. Um, and it wasn't until fairly recently that they came out with some specific guidance in various areas of uh, autonomous vehicle development and deployment that they would like to see manufacturers follow. So they went through and they uh, outlined various safety standards that they'd like to see manufacturers adhere to. They discussed new authorities that may be helpful uh, when it comes to regulating this technology as it moves forward, and they included a, a, a model state policy because historically states have handled insurance, uh, licensing, registration, and then like traffic safety issues. And so NHTSA suggested that the traditional separation of authority when it comes to regulating autonomous vehicles uh, be the same as had been the case with, with traditional vehicles. So the states have their bucket of responsibilities and the federal government has its bucket of responsibilities. And it's notable that the federal government decided to avoid pursuing a rulemaking, a formal rulemaking, because, mm -hmm. of course, that's very time-consuming, and the concern being that uh, once you get something into into the rules, uh, autonomous vehicles develop and change so quickly that um, they, they may hamper the development and deployment of the technology. Now, what's been interesting, as, as you alluded to with the, the states, 
is you had some states with a great deal of interest in this issue, and so they wanted to be proactive. Uh, you had Michigan, you had California, you had Nevada, and they all took different approaches um, several years back, beginning several years back, in introducing their own legislation and um, and, and and pursuing standards uh, that testing and deployment would have to follow in those states. And so you had California, for instance, pursue uh, a very expansive swath of authority, um, which ultimately proved to be a, a real issue for folks looking to test and uh, deploy in the state. And it, California has since walked back some of its some of its. Uh, what what were some of the issues there? Sure. Well, for instance, as as originally suggested in draft regulation, California would not allow you to sell an autonomous vehicle. You could only hmm. lease an autonomous vehicle um, because they wanted to protect consumers, was the thought, because this technology will be changing very quickly. Um, another hmm. one, you could not use an autonomous vehicle for commercial purposes. Um, but perhaps the most remarkable was that California, under its uh, proposed draft regulations, you could not test or deploy a vehicle without a steering wheel and pedals, traditional driver inputs. And of course, that sort of defeats the purpose of where this industry is really heading, which is to try to take the humans out of the equation to the greatest extent possible. So you had this interesting sort of tension between California and the federal government, where the federal government was being more permissive, uh, hmm. and you had California that really wanted to be prescriptive in, in what could be done. Um, so where we are today, uh, the federal guidelines, uh, that came out recently, California has sort of walked back some of some of those more onerous requirements, but we will see moving forward as they as they actually try to put these rules into law, just just how uh, flexible they want to be. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. You know, when you think with all the innovation that's happening in California for California to be um, so restrictive, um, that seems somewhat surprising. Well, um, the, the rhetoric of the legislature and of the administration and of regulators in California is we embrace innovation, but, you know, actions, actions are, are, are what we have to judge, judge these policymakers by. And, and it was pretty remarkable watching Uber's test vehicles, these shiny new Volvos loaded up onto, to, uh, to trailers and trucked off to Arizona just because the regulatory right. climate in California uh, proved inhospitable for them. Yeah, and that was actually an interesting situation, and 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 you wrote about that for us. But but for the people listening who who didn't happen to read that article, and I don't know why anyone would not read every article, on Hector, <laughs> but just in case they missed it, uh, if you want to talk about it, was actually a really I thought it was really interesting, and I think you know a lot of the press kind of covered it as like you know oh Uber's just you know breaking all the rules and yeah. and just you know putting stuff on the street. But but as you wrote, it's actually it was a much more nuanced argument, and and I think it's important to to dig into that. So if you want to explain what happened there. Well, so California has a, a pretty, pretty straightforward process by which manufacturers can apply for a testing permit. And, uh, and applying for a testing permit, as all of these outlets covered, is not terribly expensive. It's like 150 bucks, right? Um, excluding the cost of the big fancy law firm you have to pay to prepare the prepare the application right. <laughs> that was sort of glossed over um, <laughs> uh, but but it is it is relatively straightforward you you get some insurance and then you have to agree to turn over 
data to the DMV, um, Uber opted not to apply for a testing permit. And Uber's argument was that according to the state's definition of autonomous vehicles, uh, its test vehicles, these new Volvo XC90s, were not actually autonomous because according to the letter of the law, um, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, which as an attorney you certainly shouldn't do when it comes to <laughs> statutes. But but basically basically the 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 issue was the the statute said that uh, an autonomous vehicle can operate continuously without driver intervention, mm-hmm. and Uber's uh, textualist interpretation, which I don't I don't think was incorrect, was that was that well our technology requires uh, intervention occasionally. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to actually take a ride in one of these, these Uber test vehicles. And that is certainly the case that they are, they are impressive. But at the end of the day, they are still a relatively low level system. So according to California's law, Uber said that they did not have an autonomous vehicle. So they started to roll these things out. And, uh, the California Department of Motor Vehicles, uh, then responded and said, well, you are in violation of California law. Stop. Uber then talked to the DMV. Uh, the DMV got the uh, the California Department of Justice involved and uh, sent a cease and desist and ultimately revoked the registrations of all of the Uber uh, uh, test vehicles, huh. which which was what led to that that interesting scene of these vehicles being loaded onto the onto the truck. Just just as a as a legal aside, an interesting point to me was that the DMV, which I think probably has the authority to revoke uh, registrations in virtually right. any circumstance on the grounds of safety, decided to cite a statute which probably doesn't give them the authority to revoke the <laughs> registration so so um it was what, what it was, did what did they cite I, I i missed this part of the story well so they actually cited to they cited to the statute based on autonomous on that give that gives authority to uh regulate autonomous vehicles which really uh-huh. doesn't doesn't deal all that closely with the punitive measures that can be taken. It says that regulations may be adopted. And then you look at the regulations and it didn't have a whole lot on suspending uh, or revoking registration. Whereas if you go to a different section of the vehicle code, which explicitly deals with revoking registrations, DMV could have probably argued that these vehicles were unsafe. Of course, there were videos hmm. all over the place of these vehicles, you know, running running red lights or turning <laughs> right. the wrong way, that sort of stuff. So they could have plausibly argued that. And given the great deference that regulators are given by California courts, probably would have won. And yet at the end of the day, when the DMV spokesperson came out, um, they cited a totally different part of the code. So huh. at the end of the day, if you're Uber, fighting this probably didn't make a whole lot of sense just because you've got other more hospitable jurisdictions and so right. and so the California DMV knew that they could they could get away with it and I should say just one other thing on this there's actually a bill that's been introduced in the legislature to give DMV the authority under the statute that it cited, <laughs> so the authority to, to that do are, what it did exactly so it's now seeking the authority for for the activity which it's already completed yeah, uh, interesting. And then so so and you know as I think a lot of people know Uber then sort of packed up those cars and sent them off to Arizona, right? Correct. And um you know so that raises all sorts of questions around like jurisdiction and sort of you know a similar but but different issue is like there's the you know there's a lot of publicity around the startup comma.ai. 
um, you know, which is was this, you know, started by this one guy who basically built a apparatus to create a self-driving you know, car that, or create a box that you could attach to a car to turn it into a self-driving car um, and, you know, using artificial intelligence to basically train train the car based on what a driver was doing. Um, and they had announced plans to release a, a box for sale that you could attach to your car for about a thousand bucks. And then they got threatened. There was some sort of threat letter. I don't remember the exact specifics of the threat letter, but, you know, they basically just announced, well, okay, we won't sell in the U.S. We're just going to move everything over to China. Sheesh. And, you know, so you, you, you wonder about those things where it's like, here's a company that's, you know, they were doing something interesting and maybe they were um, being a bit brash about it. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, they did call it ghostwriting for the masses. Did so, they really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're, you know, it, it, but that's, they, have, that's, they have a little bit of an attitude. But, but that's, I mean, that's Silicon that's fair. Valley, that's fair. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of a Silicon Valley thing. It's part of how you get, get attention. And, and, yeah. and as I've said in the past, you, you sort of run into this conflict where, you know, the, the sort of Silicon Valley ethos of, you know, move fast and break things, yeah. um, you know, works in so many areas. But when you get to automobiles, that becomes really scary to, to right. regulators in particular, the idea of move fast and break things when, you, when you're talking about cars and people. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, but, but, but at the same time, I certainly worry about the idea that, you know, while, you know, Kame AI was clearly doing some really interesting and, and innovative and, and, you know, potentially groundbreaking things. And yet, you know, the regulators, as soon as they caught on, they basically drove them out of the entire country. Um, and that kind of thing scares me. Well, and, and smaller firms that are looking to get into this space really do face some tremendous obstacles. I mean, I can tell you that the, the recommended insurance requirement at both the federal and the state level is really very onerous. I mean, of course, it's not if you're, it's not if you're a Google or a GM or, or one of those firms. Right. But, but having five million dollars in insurance uh, or a surety bond, right? Um, that's not easy because that amount applies whether you've got twenty vehicles on the road or you've got like one or two vehicles on the road. And so yeah. we're 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 inadvertently stifling the development of these smaller firms who just are going to be unable to test because some of these requirements are are so difficult to adhere to. Yeah, and that's and that's a really big deal. I mean, especially coming from sort of the Silicon Valley view, you know, I think a lot of people just in general have always assumed that like, oh, it's going to be the big companies that that sort of drive the autonomous vehicle market forward. And you know, obviously Google, uh, you know, has done a lot of work, and Uber and Tesla's doing a bunch of stuff now, and obviously the big automakers um, are doing lots of stuff too. But you know. The history of innovation tends to be that it's the small upstarts that are the really, you know, real, you know, breakthrough innovations um, yeah. tend to come from them, and that they, you know, are willing to sort of, you know, take risks and do do really interesting things that go out there and sort of rethink or reshape um, the way certain markets work. Right. And if we don't have that. You know, that feels like that could be a really big loss. Well, and what's interesting is the authority largely exists at this point to regulate vehicles after sale in the event that they are unsafe. So obviously we do not want to see folks from a garage putting something out there that is truly dangerous. But at the same time, the idea that we need all of this new ability to intervene early on or, or for instance, to intervene in... Um, post-sale software changes 
uh, strikes me as really wrong headed, the wrong direction to be going on this. We want to be more permissive. We don't want to break things. Um, and at the same time, we, we want to, we want to ensure that regulators are able, able to make the recalls necessary when these vehicles hit the roads. Um, I think they already have that power. And so as the states look to, look to ensure that folks are protected, um, they need to do a better job of striking that balance. Yeah. And I, I wonder too, like, how much people recognize, like, again, I guess I sort of mentioned this earlier, but like the real possible benefits here, you know, I remember it's a while back now, and I can't remember, it's probably got to be five years or so, where there was like, there was a political ad in Florida. Um, and I don't know if either of you saw this or remember this at all, but um, it, it was, you know, a, a campaign ad, but it was targeting um, uh, an incumbent I think it may have been a state politician who had supported a bill that would have allowed for some level of, you know, autonomous vehicle testing. And and his opponent um, produced, this, produced this ad, which was horrible. It basically, like, showed, and this is in Florida, where there are potentially, let's say, a high number of senior citizens, but it, it showed an elderly woman with like a walker walking to the corner of the street and a car just like zoom by with no driver on it and like run through a stop sign mm -hmm. and all this stuff like, you know, this guy, you know, I, you know, whoever the, you know, the, <laughs> the candidate was, you know, voted to approve this, like, you know, these cars are going to run us down was right. basically the, the message of it. <laughs> where, where it's like, you know, the reality is, is the opposite where it's like, you know, if we have really good autonomous vehicles, that's going to help people get around. You She's going to be in that car. Come on. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and so, so you know, I, wa I wonder if there's, if, if how much of it also is that that story is not getting out, you know, like all of the, the, the benefits, because everyone sort of freaks out about like the, the, the fact that, you know, oh my gosh, these things might crash. But the thing is, you know, regular cars crash all the time, driven by people. Right. Um, quite a lot, you know, I'm, uh, as I mean, I'm, is it, is it like a failure of the PR of, of the autonomous vehicle industry to not be pushing on these benefits? But it, I think part of the problem, and you know, I don't didn't mean to jump in on this, but but like, I think part of the problem is, you know, I mean, it's a tough message for the autonomous vehicle industry to go out and be like, cars crash. Yeah, you know? right, right. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good message to say like, hey, grandma doesn't have to drive herself anymore, right? Like, your kids don't have to be picked up all the time. They can be safely transported. Um, you know, you don't have to commute every day there's all these great messages that are very human and and would really reach a lot of people that would tell the benefits of autonomous so i think i think that they're they're making an effort to tell that story i can tell you at at the at the hearings the public hearings on uh, regulations at both the federal and state level in california anyway um there are always activists from the disabled community there are always yeah. activists um, from the elderly community, just because they they want to tell that story. However, there is there is a countervailing narrative out there right now that's being carefully, um, carefully cultivated by I would say plaintiffs' attorneys, uh, mm -hmm. and and those who who characterize themselves as consumer advocates. Right. So you've got like consumer watchdog out there going around saying, robot cars are here to kill you. And, you know, and that's not helping anything because at the end of the day, public acceptance may end up being the largest obstacle to the deployment of these vehicles. And, and it breaks right. down on, on age lines a little bit, but, yeah. but 
it's it's one of those things where the technology could get there and public acceptance might not and that would just be that would be the worst of all worlds because we yeah. have we have this opportunity to save lives and yet because some people are not going to make as much money litigating uh auto accidents they are willing to stand in the way of that <laughs> it's, it's just it's got me scratching my head every time they go up and testify yeah i mean yeah. well the well the trans the transition could possibly be you know not full autonomous it's what's called the what level four um like I'm, I'm sure some of the features are, are kind of creeping in already. But like, I mean, cruise control has been around for years, like forever, and all of these kind of driver assistant features, which are definitely creeping into all vehicles, will kind of perhaps well that that will gracefully transition us to autonomous, not in five years, but maybe in like you know. 10, 20 years. So you hit it on the head, and, and at the end of the day, that's what sort of strikes me. We we yeah. readily embrace safety developments, one after the other, right? Automatic braking, automatic lane keeping. These are good things. We want these things. And yet, at a certain point, regulators have said, oh, nope, these new safety features are too suspect, right. and therefore, we're going to say no, and we want to have a greater say in what they do. Because at the end of the day, these self-driving technologies are fundamentally safety features, yeah, um, right. and 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 that that I don't know um, yeah. has been fully understood. I just I've never I don't understand where you draw the line between these earlier systems and and these more advanced systems, or, or why in terms of the narrative there there hasn't been a, a greater exploration of that. Right. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I had, like has the has the the airline industry had faced any you know, friction against having computers help their pilots fly their planes more safely. It's, um, it's interesting that you bring up the airline industry because the, the federal government, NHTSA, uh, suggested that it might, uh, it might adopt a power that the FAA has, which is pre-market mm -hmm. approval of various uh, technology systems. And, and NHTSA's argument was that consumer confidence is going to be of paramount importance when it comes to self-driving vehicles, um, people are very confident in airplanes, even though it involves getting in a metal tube and going 40,000 right. feet in the air, um, because because uh, there's a pre-market approval process. And that's what gives consumers consumers confidence. And so hmm. it's I mean, I don't I don't think that's the case because the safety record is ultimately ultimately yeah. what gets people to believe in something. Um, but it's on it's on NHTSA's mind. Of course, the downside of that would be the average the average time for pre-market approval for the FAA is <laughs> yeah. seven seven years. I mean, wow. it's just it drags on forever, which in this context really wouldn't work. Yeah, that would be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the difference there too is like, you know, the ordinary everyday citizen doesn't even realize how much of, you know, an airplane flight is now, you know, automated, uh, you know, and how much, you know, the, the switch from, from, um, you know, from pilots really flying the plane to autopilot doing most of the work was such that we didn't realize it and we didn't see it happen. Um, and well, but, certainly but, not post nine eleven. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, with the locked doors yes. and everything. But 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 you know, with with a car, it's a very different story. I mean, you know, lots of people, you know, either drive a car themselves or see tons of people driving a car every single day. Um, and so that's a very, very different story. And, uh, you know, I think going back one step too, I wanted to jump back to, you know, the, the, the point that you were making Dennis about, you know, the sort of marketing side of, of the benefits. I think one of the other 
things and one of the other reasons why some of the companies have sort of hesitated to to make that pitch is because the the um the technology is not there yet right and so pitching this vision of all these wonderful things that can happen is really important but they also want to be reasonably careful about overselling it too especially at the stage that it's at right. i mean you know uh, you know there was the there was the high profile accident with the tesla that was using its um you know self-driving technology where basically the guy was acting as if the technology could do everything right and it couldn't and you know it, that ended tragically um well, and of course, so, te Tesla was cleared by NHTSA after the investigation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but, but that's an issue where you sort of have to walk that line of where is the technology today versus where is it going? And, you know, promoting, you know, getting there would be really important, but, but also without, you know, having people think that the technology is already there today. So it's a really difficult line to walk. Um, and obviously has policy implications all up and down that road because, you know, when things go wrong, you know, then the policymakers step in and things get bad. <laughs> well, when I uh, when I worked in the in the Capitol in Sacramento, the line always was bills created by headlines make the worst law. And yeah. I, I'm very I'm very fearful that that will be the case with uh, self-driving vehicles because it, it is an inevitability that there is going to be some sort of an incident as these things start to be deployed. Um, and there's going to be a backlash and we just have to be, be prepared to, to tell the story of the upsides of these vehicles and, and the way that they can improve everyone's lives. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm also, I'm, I, maybe I'm just a little guilty of being really bullish on this technology because I'm so excited for what it could be. Uh, but at the same time, the, the, the alternative to me is is a 747 crashing every day the status quo that we've just kind of become uh right. become okay with for some reason and um that's that's something i can't reconcile <laughs> yeah no i think that's the biggest deal and it's, it's like it's one of the things that people bring up every time there's like you know a, a you know a big headline incident and people freak out and and you know the fact that so many car crashes happen every day and so many people die or or are you know seriously injured or or whatever um it just seems to go unnoticed it's you know it's you have enough enough of those happening it just becomes a, a statistic instead of like you know a national emergency right right exactly <laughs> um and so that's 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 a big deal um anyways i know we're we're running out of time but uh you know i'll let you get in a, a final word if, if you want one <laughs> <laughs> on, on on sort of what what you think is important here and and what do you think is going to happen uh, there's all sorts of areas we can go but right well i suppose what i think is is going to be most most important and, and certainly most most interesting from where i'm sitting is the the interaction between federal and state regulators in this space because we're sort of in a moment where we've seen different models in different states for how we want to approach regulating these vehicles some some better than others um, some trying to protect traditional oems others others trying to protect other interests um, and at this point we just kind of need to see how it shakes out, what what is best for the technology. And so I'm, I'm excited to see where these companies sort of organically go, because at the end of the day, though there's a lot of expertise in Michigan and California, uh, I think these companies are going to be interested in looking all kinds of other places as well, um, just because 
this is this is going to be a perfect example of of finding the the course of of least resistance right technology and innovation wants to wants to find a way and then also the administration right um i think yeah. it, i think the department of transportation will be friendly to autonomous vehicles i certainly hope they will continue to be friendly to autonomous vehicles um will they will they decide to keep the same course of of taking a non-binding guidance but lots of interaction between industry and government sort of approach which i think probably makes the most sense you know just an ongoing dialogue and and non-mandatory information sharing is probably the best way forward here so i'm really excited just to see how these things start to shake out i'm, I'm excited to see um you know how many board legislators in random states start to introduce legislation <laughs> and and uh, the impact of that but but it's a, it's a really neat place to be just because the implications of the deployment of these vehicles are so profound yeah i think that's that's a good good way to sum it up and and also makes it clear that there's going to be plenty of stuff happening uh, in this arena over the next few years and plenty of stuff to to watch and to pay attention to and certainly to write about and to talk about. So um, we'll certainly have you back. You've written a few articles for us on TechTrade about this stuff, and, and I'm sure we'll have you uh, write a few more. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it'll be cool to have you back on the podcast in, in, you know, in the future as well and see how, how these things are developing as well as some other areas. Absolutely. Well. But, you know, thank, thanks very much for joining us. It was a really interesting conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope everyone listening did. I'm sure they did. Uh, and thanks everyone who is listening as well. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.